Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardes alum. This week, Toldot. This week, Rabbi Meir Schweiger discusses Toldot. Rabbi Meir Schweiger is a senior member of the Pardes faculty and also serves as the Pardes Mashkiach Ruchani, the spiritual guide for Pardes. And now, Rabbi Meir Schweiger. Thank you, Larry. This week's Parsha is Parsha Toldot. I would like to begin by dedicating this podcast to the memory of my father, Zev ben Yoshua Falik, whose your site is today. At the end of the podcast, I will make a few remarks about my father that I think will be connected with the content of the podcast. The opening line of the Parsha says, Eile toldot Yitzchak ben Avraham, Avraham holidet Yitzchak. And as we've noted in another podcast, there is a real difficulty in this verse. Why tell me Yitzhak is the son of Avraham? We know that already. And then, why say a second time, Avraham holidet Yitzhak, that Avram caused him to be born? Rashi is very sensitive to this question and offers two explanations from a Midrash. One explanation is that there were skeptics who said that, in fact, Yitzhak is not the son of Avraham. How could that be? After Avraham and Sarah have been married for so long and have no children, it couldn't be that Avraham is the father. And they claimed that, in fact, Avimelech, who had taken Sarah for the night or more, he was the one who had impregnated Sarah. And as a result, the Midrash says, Yitzchak looked like Avraham, so that everyone would be forced to admit that Avraham, in fact, is the father of Yitzchak. But there is a second explanation which Rashi gives, which I would like to pursue further, and which we also have seen in another podcast. The Pasuk is telling me not only that Avraham physically is the father of Yitzchak, but that in fact, Avraham is the progenitor of events in the life of Yitzchak. If we look at the life of Yitzchak, we will see how it parallels the life of Avraham. Deja vu. It seems that many things are happening in the life of Yitzchak, similar to the life of Avraham. And to take one example which we've spoken about, there is a famine in the lifetime of Avraham. And in our parsha in chapter 26, it says there's a famine in the lifetime of Yitzchak, besides the famine that was in the time of Avraham. Avraham passes off his wife as his sister. Yitzchak passes off his wife as his sister. In the aftermath of the famine, Avraham emerges as a very, very wealthy man. In the aftermath of Yitzchak's famine, he begins to become a very, very wealthy man. Avraham digs wells. Yitzchak digs wells. Avraham builds altars. Yitzchak builds altars. Avraham is approached by the king Avimelech to make a pact. Yitzchak is approached to also make a pact. Connected with those stories, Avraham calls the place where they make the pact, Be'er Sheva, Yitzchak does as well. These are all examples of parallels between the two. And in fact, we also discussed how although they're parallel, they're also different. But I'm not going to go into that right now. Today, what I'd like to discuss is another parallel. And that is, Avraham has a wife who's barren. 
Yitzchak has a wife who's barren. Avraham has two sons. Yitzchak has two sons. Avraham ends up, quote-unquote, sacrificing his two sons. And what I would like to examine today is what I would call the second Akedah of Yitzchak, or how perhaps Yitzchak may be also going through a process of sacrificing his sons. So before I get to examining our parsha and explaining in much more detail <clears throat> what I mean, let us go back to the story of Avraham and see what happens regarding his two sons. We will begin with chapter 16 in Breshit. Sarai sees that she's incapable of having children, and she then comes to Avraham and says to him, I'm not able to have children. God has held me back. She asks him to take her maid, Hagar, to be a wife, from whom he will have a child, and through that she will be built up. And it is unclear from the text what her final goal is. Is it that the child of Hagar will be adopted by her, perhaps appropriated by her, to become her child? She will raise that child. And through Hagar, this is how she will have a child? Or, as Rashi Rashi suggests, that perhaps when God sees the sacrifice that she's making, by inviting competition, so to speak, offering her maid to be the wife of Avraham, that God will have compassion on her, open up her own womb, so that she merits to have her own child. And of course we know that the second one is what actually happens. But before we talk about that, I would like to say that, in theory, Yishmael could have been the adopted child of Sarah. But it doesn't happen, because when Hagar becomes pregnant, that creates a lot of tension between her and Sarah. It seems that Hagar, once she becomes pregnant, fully sees herself as the wife of Avraham, and does not want to really be the maid of Sarah. That tension leads to Hagar running away. And although Hagar eventually comes back as a result of having a divine encounter with an angel, and although she bears a son whom she names Ishmael as a reminder of how God has been responsive to her suffering, it is not clear from the text that the relationship between these two women has really mended. And this actually becomes clear in chapter 21. When Sarah sees the son of Hagar being mitzachek, it triggers in her mind, perhaps memories or latent feelings, that this is not her child, that Hagar is not someone that she wants around. And to be fair, in chapter 17, when God tells Abraham that Sarah will become pregnant, and that she will have a child. God emphatically insists that the child of Sarah, who will be called Yitzchak, will be the child of the covenant. Although Yishmael will be blessed, Yitzchak will be the child of the covenant. And then, in chapter 21, Sarah comes to Avraham and says to Avraham, get rid of this maid, get rid of her son, because your heir is Yitzchak. And God validates her statement. God says to Avram, listen to Sarah, do whatever she says. It's important to note 
that this is a very, very difficult test for Avraham. Because Avraham sees Yishmael as his son. We see that in chapter 17. As soon as Avraham is told of Sarah having a child, his immediate reaction is, and how will that affect Yishmael? And then we see this in chapter 21. When Sarah says, you must get rid of Yishmael, it is evil in the eyes of Avraham. He doesn't want to do it. Now, ultimately, it's God who tells Avraham, get rid of Yishmael. He will not be the heir, who in effect pushes Yishmael out of the house of Avraham. I would like to posit as a possibility. Perhaps God said that because the tension between Sarah and Hagar was never resolved. Because ultimately, the two of them were not able to come to some type of constructive relationship. And without blaming whose fault it was, but the fact that they weren't able to somehow live with a certain tension, that ultimately led to the need of having Yishmael sent away. Subsequently, God tests Avraham, what we know as Akedat Yitzchak. And I'm not going to go into what was the purpose of Akedat Yitzchak. We've discussed this in other podcasts. But I would just like to focus on one point, And that is, in the aftermath of Akedat Yitzchak, we can actually see a certain break between Avraham and Yitzchak. Avraham returns with the lads, but not with Yitzchak. In the aftermath of Akedat Yitzchak, we don't find any communication between Avraham and Yitzchak. Even at the death of Sarah, we don't find Yitzchak present. And in many ways, this is a very tragic, lonely situation for Avraham, where Avraham, in effect, because of what God says to him, is forced to let go of both of his sons. And now what I'd like to do is to then look at our parsha in light of that. In our parsha, Rivka is barren. But ultimately, the way that Rivka becomes pregnant is not by offering Yitzchak to take her maid. But as we've noted in another podcast, it's because Yitzchak prays on behalf of Rivka for a very long time. And God is very responsive to his prayer. And lo and behold, Rivka has two has twins in her stomach. So here is the difference between Yitzchak and between Avraham. Avraham has two sons, but from two wives. Yitzchak has two sons, but from the same wife. Maybe I'll even sharpen it. God makes the point to Avraham. It's Sarah who's your wife, not really Hagar. But in our case, there's no question, Rivka is the wife of Yitzchak. And what's the point that I want to make? There's also absolutely no question that the two children in Rivka's womb should both be the children of the covenant. And yet, even before they're born, we find that there is a struggle going on between these two children in her womb. And evidently, the struggle is so disturbing to Rivka that she goes to seek God to find out what does this mean. And God tells her, you have two nations in your womb two national entities. And in effect, there will be a struggle. And God says, Verav Ya'avod Sa'ir, and the, which we could interpret older or the more numerous, will serve the younger. 
which is a very ambivalent, very unclear, and perhaps even loaded statement. As we continue in the parsha, we can see that, the, yes, there is a tension between these two sons. And that's reflected in the next story. When Esav comes back from hunting, first of all, there are two different personalities. Esav is a hunter, a man of the field. Yaakov is someone who is an Ishtam, someone who is, if you want to translate it, naive, or maybe better, uncunning, someone who dwells in tents. Two very different personalities. Two personalities where there may be an underlying tension. And how do we see that? Well, in the story, Esav comes back from hunting. He's very tired. He's very hungry. He sees Yaakov, who's making a porridge. And he asks him to give him, give him to eat from that. And then there are, quote-unquote, negotiations that go on. Yaakov says, sure, I'll give you to eat from that if you sell me the birthright. And essentially, Esav says, who cares about the birthright? I'm going to die. Die from hunger. And so that Yaakov says, well, swear to me. Esav swears. And he sells the birthright to Yaakov. I want to just point out right now that this is a little bit unusual of how brothers would behave towards each other. And maybe it's worth noting, Yaakov is not behaving towards Esav as a brother. As a brother, he would offer him, of course, I'll give you this porridge to eat. Clearly, Yaakov is acting towards him as someone who is the other, who has something which he wants, and where he knows how to use his leverage to be able to get it. It's true, everything is completely above board, but already you begin to see that there is not a brotherly relationship between the two. Now I want to go back a little bit. We're told that Yitzchak loves Esav, and Rivka loves Yaakov. And it's actually a very interesting question. How does each one relate to their other son? Well, when we get to the story of the later on in chapter 27 of the Blessings, there are a few places where it says, or it speaks of, Rivka's older son and her younger son, and where the word son vis-a-vis Rivka is applied to both. We don't necessarily find that same thing by Yaakov vis-a-vis Yitzchak. And if anything, it seems to be that Yitzchak's focus is on Esav. And now what I'd like to do is to perhaps draw a parallel between Esav and between Yishmael. And to say that in the same way that Avraham loved Yishmael, and the same way that Avraham saw Yishmael perhaps as his firstborn, and maybe even saw that his destiny would be carried through Yishmael, Yitzchak, even more so, sees that in Esav. And although Esav, when he's 40 years old, marries Canaanite women, which is very disturbing, first and foremost, to Yitzchak, but nevertheless, Yitzchak is not prepared to write off Esav. On a certain level, what Rivka does in the story of the blessing is parallel to what Sarah did in the expulsion of Ishmael. And I would perhaps add, maybe unintentionally, what happens in the story in chapter 27 in our parsha? Yitzhak is about to die, or Yitzhak thinks he's about to die. He's getting old. And before he gets old, he would like to bless his eldest son, the son that he loves. And Rivka somehow finds out about this. And as we all know, she has Jacob dress up as if he is Esav. And ultimately, Jacob gets that blessing. 
But let's think about this for a moment. Clearly, what she wants to do is to take away the blessing from Esav and to see that Yaakov is the beneficiary of it. But in doing so, she is in effect pushing away Esav. Interestingly, God is not mentioned in this story. Everything is happening on a human plane. Why is Rivka doing this? And as I mentioned earlier, it seems that she has a relationship with Esav. And yet, despite that, she somehow sees Yaakov as being, quote-unquote, the chosen son. Perhaps this is grounded in this original prophecy that was given to her of the struggle between the two sons and of how the Rav Ya'avod Sa'ir. And so that perhaps she is seeing that word of God in a similar way that Sarah saw the word of God that said Yitzchak is the heir. She is now applying that to Yaakov. But we should realize that the moment that Yitzchak gives the blessing to Yaakov, on a certain level, he loses Esav. And in fact, when we read what happens in the aftermath, it's heart-wrenching. Esav pleads with Yitzchak again and again, please give me a blessing. And in a way, begrudgingly, he gives him a blessing, a blessing which is you will live by the sword, which very interestingly echoes what happened in, to Yishmael. Yishmael doesn't live by the sword, but he's an archer. Yishmael was given the destiny he will be a wild man, a wild ass, so that to a certain extent, Esav is being marginalized, not by God, but by Rivka, and then by Yitzchak. And I would say, to a certain extent, to a certain extent, unintentionally. But now let's look at the next part. After Yaakov gets the blessing, Esav is very, very upset. He hates Yaakov. He's planning to kill Yaakov. Esav is planning to kill Yaakov. Avraham was told to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. The sending away of Yishmael sets the stage for the Akedah, but it's God who's orchestrating it. In our story, the marginalizing of Esav sets the stage for the departure of Yaakov. Esav hates him. Esav wants to kill him. Rivka, the same Rivka who pushed Esav out, is also the one who wants to save Yaakov, who learns of this plan. And her scheme is to have him go to her brother to find a wife, which she ultimately gets Yitzhak to agree to. So what's the point which I want to make with this? In the life of Avraham, Avraham finds himself in a situation where he has two sons, two sons who perhaps are in conflict with each other, where the conflict may be an extension of a certain tension between their mothers, and where God at one point tells them, you have to get rid of this son, Yishmael, and eventually tells him, you're going to sacrifice that son, Isaac. And although Avraham doesn't sacrifice Isaac, and although Isaac remains the child of the covenant, Avraham loses him. He no longer has a relationship with him. In the story of Yitzchak, there is a tension between these two sons, not because of their mothers, because of their personalities, but their mother, and I would add perhaps in this case their father also, do not do what needs to be done to somehow play down that tension. And if anything, 
maybe even exacerbate that tension. And the minute they don't find a way of somehow dealing with the tension and trying to solve it, that leads to the family falling apart. The moment Yitzchak gives the blessing to Yaakov, on many levels he's lost Esav. And at that point, for all intents and purposes, Esav has been written out of the Jewish future. It's even striking that the very end of our parsha that Esav marries the daughter of Yishmael, which would then even, which would heighten even more the connection between Esav and Yishmael. And then I want to say, Yaakov is hated by his brother. In the end, Yaakov is not sacrificed. He's not killed. And not only that, but Yaakov in the aftermath emerges as the true heir. He's given the blessing of Avraham. But at the same time, Yaakov leaves Yitzchak. And when we read the end of the parsha, in many ways, there's a certain sense of tragedy of a family that's fallen apart. And one might add to a certain extent, you might see that by Avraham as well. In the aftermath of the Akedah, Yitzchak does not come back with him. In the aftermath of the Akedah, the next thing we're told about is the death of Sarah. I'd like to end on a more positive note and say that perhaps what happens in Jacob's life, in Yaakov's life, has the potential to reflect once again the stories of his predecessors. Because Yaakov has four wives, two regular wives, two maids, which on a certain level is a replay of the story of Avraham, with all the tensions that are built in. Not only that, but then as we go along, we see that a certain tension between Rachel and Leah then plays itself out in a tension between their children, to the point where Joseph has to go away, where Joseph is almost killed, where he's sold into slavery. In the end, the family could have broken apart in a similar way to what happened with Avraham and Yitzhak. The greatness of Yaakov is that Yaakov somehow was able to find a way to have his four wives live together and ultimately to have his sons all live together. Yaakov was able to somehow create a united family which did not fall apart. And not only did Yaakov do it in his own immediate family, but perhaps one of the last things which Yaakov did was to call in Joseph's two sons. And in the case of Joseph's two sons, he blesses them, but blesses the younger one above the older one, which in many ways is a replay of our parsha of Yaakov and Esav. But Yaakov got it right. Yaakov had both of them present to be blessed. Yaakov gave both of them a blessing at the same time. And in that context, he says, but Ephraim will be greater than Menashe. We could only imagine what would have happened if Yitzchak, instead of blessing or wanting to bless Esav, would have brought both of them before him. What if Rivka had spoken to Yitzchak and somehow got him to see that maybe Yaakov should be the one who has the leadership role? Then the course of Jewish history would have gone in a completely different direction. So I would, I would like to just end by saying, my father was somebody who was very, very committed to family. 
and to the unity of the family. My parents were Holocaust survivors. Unfortunately, after the Holocaust, my mother was not able to have more than one child, me, so that the whole question of sibling rivalry was never part of my reality. And yet, my parents did have family in America, in Israel, and they made every effort always to find a way of preserving family unity, even in situations where there was tremendous potential to blow things apart. I think something to reflect upon what I've been trying to do is how, in the case of Avraham, it's true that God directed Avraham to have Isaac and Yishmael part ways and maybe with the other implications that I spoke about. But perhaps the story begins much earlier in this tension between Hagar and Sarah and Avraham's inability to find a way of having them all live together. And that continues in the story of Yitzchak, where there would have been a much greater basis for having a common language. And yet somehow there is a failure of communication in this family, a failure of communication that ultimately leads to a rupturing of this family. And perhaps the bright spot is that Yaakov becomes a corrective for his predecessors. And that with all the tension and struggles, Yaakov somehow succeeds in learning from the past and being able to somehow communicate to his children and to the members of his family how they have to somehow pull together. And that is his greatness. We live at a time when communication is perhaps failing us. And within the Jewish people and beyond, there is a certain polarization that can very much tear us apart. And perhaps we need to reflect, how can we better communicate? And how can we find how to minimize tensions that exist to be able to create a situation which ultimately will be sustained to avoid the tragedies that can result from an Akedah? Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Schweiger. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.